Bibles, if you would please, to Philippians chapter 4. And if you'll find that very quickly, we're going to stand and read this verse. Uh, No long introduction this evening. We're going to stand and read and get right into our study. Philippians chapter 4, if you'd stand with me please as we read just this one verse of Scripture from God's Word. Philippians 4, verse number 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. And maybe you ought to read that with me since it was so short. Let's do it together. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we're able to be here tonight. And Lord, we just praise your name. There are so many things for us to rejoice about, knowing that you are our Savior and our God. And I even thank tonight again, Lord, about Brother Eric being here. We rejoice because of that, that you brought him home safely to us. Watch over us, Lord. Help us as we preach your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Philippians chapter 4, verse number 4. You know, in the past few weeks, we've been talking about the main reason that Paul wrote the book of Philippians. It seems that there was a problem of division brewing in the church. And that division had the potential to ruin the fellowship of the church. Now, this was a church that was like all churches in the first century. They were part of an empire that was hostile to Christianity. It wasn't easy for those people to be a Christian. And when Paul writes to this church, these are people that haven't quite got enough spiritual maturity to focus on eternal things rather than on physical material things. And so it's no accident that Paul taught the very same things as Christ, the same truths concerning things in the material world. If you remember, Jesus said, don't lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt. But he said, lay up treasures in heaven. And he says also that where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Paul echoed that theme in Philippians, or excuse me, in Colossians chapter 3, the next book over from this one, when he says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ, Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Focusing on the material world would affect the Philippians in a multitude of ways. If their happiness was dependent upon circumstances that were going on around them, then they would always be unhappy. And that's because of that difficulty of living a Christian life during that time. They would find no peace and they would find no joy in their life for Christ if they thought it meant being fulfilled with the things of this world. Pressures that we have in this world can lead us to strife and division. And when we begin to focus on ourselves, then we can't focus on what God is doing in the world. So Paul gave them this fourth verse. And we notice here that it's not a suggestion. This verse is spoken as a command. In fact, it's a repeated command for emphasis. He says, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. The question that we broached in the first part of this message last week was how can Paul issue that kind of a command? Rejoicing seems to be a subjective thing. Rejoicing depends on the circumstances that are happening. It depends on the mental state of the person. It depends on whether things are happening positively or negatively. And so how can Paul possibly command these people to rejoice? And if our joy is dependent upon circumstances that are around us, then it would be impossible for someone to tell us, you must rejoice. You can't give us a command like that. But there's a bigger picture here. 
The underlying theme of this entire epistle is life in the Spirit. It's the the life-giving, life-enabling spiritual power of a Christian that he draws not from what's outside of him, but he draws from the Holy Spirit that is dwelling within. In two very important verses of Scripture that we've repeated throughout this study, and we'll just keep going back to these, uh, Paul says in chapter 1 that God would perform the work that he began in us. And he said that's going to go on, God's work. Once you have become a Christian, his work will go on in you until you meet Christ. And then he says in chapter 2 that God works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So God is working in his people through the power of the Holy Spirit, and that's why Paul can say, rejoice always. So the command is not a subjective one, it's an objective command, and it's based concretely in the power of the Spirit. And not only that, the command is objective because it's also based in God's demonstration of things that he's done for us, both physically and spiritually. And so as I began to think about this verse, I, I wanted to list some of those areas that we can think about, some specific demonstrations where we can find our reasons to rejoice. Uh, later on, we'll get down to verse number 8 in this chapter, and there you'll find that there are more specifics and things that we can uh, think about. Thinking correctly in those areas will lead us away from ourselves and cause us to focus on God. And really, that's what we should be doing anyway, because... God is always working in us for his own glory. Now, I'm reminded as we think about this of the study that we have in Revelation, and we can see how what we're reading there also figures into the kind of thoughts that we're talking about in this chapter. We've talked about the stopping places that there are in Revelation, and that's where God gives his people that are going through tribulation a period of rest, just to sort of catch up, and, and he shows them, uh, shows them what's going to happen in the future, and he shows them how he's going to bring everything to an end. He lets them know where all things are headed. Now, if they remain with a very closely held, narrowly focused view, then that would have caused them to think that there is no hope. If they focus on their immediate circumstances and they can't see the whole picture of what God is doing, when they can't see that God has an eternally prepared plan and God is stepping through that plan in everything that he does, if they can't see that, if they don't know the big picture, then they're in despair. Now, even though they can't see the whole picture, and even though you and I can't see the whole picture of what God is doing in our lives, Yet we have to trust him that he never is mistaken. God never takes a misstep. All things are under his control. And what's working out is his intention all along. So that kind of thinking really changes the picture. In chapter 1, Paul said, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but to also to suffer for his sake. That's a hard statement. But it can be spoken harmoniously with what we've just read in Philippians 4, verse 4. Now, we're looking then at some of these demonstrated areas of the Spirit that cause us to rejoice. So we have this list of things that we're going through that are reasons for rejoicing. Now, very briefly, let me give you two of these reasons that we talked about last week. The first one was to rejoice in God's salvation. And I thought that that was the place that we ought to start because... Our salvation is really the foundation of all the arguments and all the reasons that that we could ever give to rejoice. 
A person who is without God has no relationship to God. A person without Christ, I should say. And so that type of person, that kind of person, an unbeliever, could never find reasons to rejoice in any of these things that we're talking about. Now, very simply put, God is not at work to bring happiness and contentment to those who are not his children. I know that there are a lot of people, I've talked to some people and you probably have too, that speak about God in a very wispy, ethereal way. They speak of being spiritual people, and yet they don't have any sense at all why that would make them any different than five other billion people that are on this planet. I mean, the truth of the matter is, we're all spiritual people because we have a spirit. So there's no great revelation when somebody says to you, well, I'm a spiritual person. But the thing is, we're not all children of God. God is the creator of all, there's no question about that, but he does not have a family relationship with anyone who has not repented of their sins and placed their faith in Christ. The reason that we are accepted by God is only on the merits of Jesus Christ. It's the only way that we're accepted with God. And so the relationship that we have with God is not built upon anything that we have done, it's built upon what Christ has done. And so God convicts us of sin, he cleanses us from sin, and he corrects us in our sin. And those who aren't his children don't want to be convicted of their sins. They care nothing at all about being cleansed from their sins, and they certainly don't want to be corrected in their sin. So we rejoice in God's salvation. Then secondly, I said that we need to rejoice in God's sovereignty. Rejoice in his sovereignty, and that's because God is in control. Every bad situation, the currently bad situation that you're going to is going through is only a part of God's overall plan. Now there, once again, we think about those martyrs that are in the book of Revelation, and they're going through the very worst of times. And without seeing the whole picture, they're, they're, they're going through all of those things. Now they don't have the advantage that we have, and that is that we've got the whole book. We can read the back of the book. And we can see that everything that's temporal is not worth holding on to anyway. What we have in this world is headed for destruction. All of it's going to be consumed when God brings in the new heavens and the new earth. And this is why Jesus said, keep laying up your treasures in heaven, because everything that you have here will be destroyed. Everything that you accumulate is going to pass away. But God controls all the circumstances, and as he does, he's always consistent. He's always dependable. He's always consistent with the overall plan. So there is no guesswork with God, and there, there's nothing really that's built on an unforeseeable contingency. So there's where we ended then last week. We have reasons to rejoice in God's salvation and in God's sovereignty. Now let's go on then with the third reason, and that is to rejoice in God's supply. And I think this is really where most of you are living right now. We've entered into an economic downturn. Some of you are living on greatly reduced pay. Some of you are having trouble with mortgages. Some of you have lost your jobs. Some of you are concerned almost every day about how you're going to pay the bills and how you're going to feed your family. And what you don't want to hear was when you come to church is have a hundred people say to you, well, keep your chin up. Things are going to get better. Things are going to work out in the end. All of us know that there are consequences to what's going on. Behind all of this, there's the loss of, loss of some of your favorite things. Uh, there's loss in when you think about your credit rating or whatever that might be. Uh, that takes a plunge. And you think, well, that's going to take years for me to recover from that. 
Now, the reality of it is we have to live through these things, and I can't be so callous as to say that none of that really matters anyway. So maybe I could say it this way. It matters. It does matter. But it's not all that matters. And it's not the most important thing that matters. And just so I can show you that I'm not someone up here who doesn't sympathize, and I preach to someone who, who's never gone through any of this, or I can just spit out answers for how you can make it through it, just to show I'm not that way, I can tell you that I've lived with the very same problems. I've been around a pretty long time. Uh, some years ago, I guess it was about 25 years ago, I was in a business in Kentucky, and the housing market took a downturn, and things began to dry, dry up. A few years earlier, I had invested a lot of time and a lot of money in trying to get a ready-mix concrete plant operational and viable. And we were operating in a very tough market. So we spent a lot of years juggling things and keeping things going. And all in all, I made a really good income out of that. I was doing very well. But the problem was that all the time we were sort of on the edge financially. And all that it would do is just take somewhat of a downturn and we would fall off of the edge and everything would come crashing down. Well, sure enough, one of the recessions came and, and a, a downturn came and so things came down and there was no hope of turning that around. And so I was just like a lot of you. My first thoughts about that was that I'm ruined. How am I going to recover from this? And so what I was doing was focusing on the immediate circumstance. Now, I was a Christian I trusted God, just like many of you do, but I honestly didn't do what a lot of people do. Things get bad, and so what they do is they start blaming God. And then they give up, and then they go into apostasy. I never did that, but I can't tell you that I didn't wonder why God was doing things that he was doing, and I I couldn't figure out some of the things out. And so I began to focus on God's promises. I focused on these concrete demonstrations that God had already made in my life. And so I began to focus on the one who's always in control. So one day I was reading my Bible, and there was a verse that I had read, I don't know, countless times before, maybe a hundred times, I don't know how many times I'd read it. But that verse leaped out at me at that time, and it made more sense than any other time that I'd ever read it. And that was in 1 John 3, verse number 22. So where John says, And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And so that verse told me that what I must do is remain faithful. No matter what the distractions are, no matter what was going on in my life, I could not stop at any time doing what God said to do. And so I knew God had the answers. I knew that I wasn't abandoned. And I knew that God would take care of me. Now, what I'm not doing for you tonight, I'm not giving you a health, wealth, and prosperity speech. And I'm not telling you that I've got a formula, that if you'll do this, I absolutely promise you that a check will be in the mail, and there'll be $1,000 deposited in your bank account mysteriously. I'm not telling you that because I don't believe those things. What I do believe, and what I am saying, is that God, in just some common, ordinary way or with rarity in some uncommon, extraordinary way, he will supply your needs. Now, first of all, God supplies all things physical. God is not a metaphysical God. So I think that we can, what we can do is we can take God's own word, something he's written in the scripture, and we can read 
reverently God's words back to him. I want you to listen to what James says in James chapter 2. He says, If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful for the body, what doth it profit? God does not say to you, Be ye warmed and filled, and then send you off empty-handed. There's a physical supply. God doesn't say, well, you've got a problem. I recognize that. And you try to figure out how to solve it. James taught us to be proactive when it came to the needy. And do you think that God who gave that very principle would do anything less? If you think of the hardest times that you've ever been through, can you honestly say that you've been without food? When things get tough, Are you absolutely destitute? You know, we really don't even know what that means in America, I don't think. What does it really mean to be destitute? Every day, God keeps coming up with something, doesn't he? I mean, it it may not be the way that you want it to come and the way that you expect it to come, and it may not be your favorite way that he does it, but God always supplies the need. I want you to turn over to Matthew chapter 6 for just a moment. This, of course, is the Sermon on the Mount. Most of you are very familiar with the passage and. Maybe you can even quote it, but Matthew chapter 6 and verse number 28 is where I want to start reading. Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, Why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink? Wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. Now let me take you back to the personal story for just a moment. The end of the personal story is I survived. My wife survived. My children survived. I couldn't see the way out of it, but God provided. I don't have time to tell you another story, but that wasn't the end of all things that I've been through. That 25 years ago, that wasn't the last time. I sailed along pretty well for another 20 years after that until one day there was an employee of mine who embezzled quite a bit of money from me. And what happened then was things took a nosedive again. But I'm still here. And really, I think that God takes those kinds of things and God was teaching me and preparing me for what I do now. Uh, Circumstances are all controlled by God and so he used circumstances to mold me, to give me experience, to teach me to trust him and then I can turn around and teach you to trust him as well. And I give you my personal experience not because I want want to make me look good and make you think that I'm God's other son I'm just a guy who read 1 John 3.22 and it made sense to me. See, the Holy Spirit spoke through that and it made sense. Now, the second part of God's supply is that God supplies all things spiritual. God works in the material world in a, with a providential supply and God is also working in the spiritual world. Now, we're always worried about things we can see. I mean, we're worried about facts and figures and what's going on with the checkbook and what's going on with the bank account. But all the time that we're worried about things that we can see, there are things that are going on around us that we can't see. 
and we don't have any input over them at all. When you think about it, what are the most important things in your life? What happens with areas that you can't control? What happens when there are things that are going on? You can't do a thing about them. You can't turn it around. You can't do anything to make it happen like you want to happen. You know, it's amazing how that God can teach you and how that God knew on the day that actually that I was preparing this message exactly what I needed, perhaps even as an illustration, to tell you. I received a phone call on the day. You know, if you, if you follow the, out, the bulletins and you, you, the website, you, you see that messages are prepared uh, sometimes three or four weeks, a month in advance, and we already know what the topics I'm going to be speaking on, so I was preparing this message about a month ago. And I received a call just before I was getting things ready, and I can't tell you who I was talking to because the person didn't say that I could broadcast his comments. But someone called me, and this person was facing financial ruin. And the handwriting wasn't just on the wall. I mean, it was already in the process of happening. He was ruined financially. This person and I have a mutual friend, and he was also going through a crisis, only his crisis was not financial. He had a family crisis that was happening, and it involved a, a young child, and it was very, very serious. Now, I'll call him John. That's not his real name, but I'll call him John. And my friend called me and said to me, I'm going through this financial thing. But I look at John, and I see what he's going through, and I see that my financial thing is nothing compared to what's happening in his family. Nothing compared to what's happening to his child. I see what John is going through, and there's no way that what I'm going through compares to what he's facing. Well, it turned out, turns out that John is also a Christian, and he was facing that terrible family crisis with faith. And he truly did believe that God was building him up and God was blessing him. And, and really, even through that, God was doing something with him that he couldn't see. See, when you think about it, what is the most important thing to you? Is it the money? Is that it? Or is it the family? Is it things like that? You know, God supplies the spiritual fortitude that you need to get through everything that you face. Today I was working on Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7, which comes up in another month or so. And uh, as I was writing that, I was dealing with this very issue, that, that God gives us spiritually exactly what we need to face the trial that we're in right at the moment. So God knows all about things spiritually, all things physically. He, he's not baffled by anything in the physical world. He made everything, and so he directs everything. So Paul is here speaking of rejoicing because things that are in the spiritual world that we can't see, things that can harm us, God is holding all of that at bay. And things that are in the physical world, all the blessings that maybe we're just not ready to receive right now, God's holding them in store for just the right time. Well, we've got time to talk about one more. So I've got six of these things that we're speaking about reasons for rejoice. I think they're all important, so we're going to come back and talk to them about next week, uh, also next week. But we have one more reason for tonight that I think that we can rejoice. And number four is to rejoice in God's supplication. Salvation, sovereignty, supply, and supplication. We can rejoice because we can talk with God. Now peek down there to verse number six. I made reference a moment ago to it. Be careful for nothing 
But in everything, by prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. By prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known unto God. Prayer is a source of joy. And yet, it's one of the areas that we most often neglect. The very thing that God says will bring us comfort, that will help us to get through these bad times, is the thing that people bypass. They completely forget about just speaking to God. Because prayer is the way that we receive the things that we need from God. Now, surely the worst of, one of the worst of the consequences of the fall of Adam was when he lost intimate contact with God. Now, the implication of that whole story, the fall in the Garden of Eden, would lead us into how that sin came into the universe. And we could also talk about the curse that God placed upon the entire earth. But I don't want us to think about that part of it right now. I want us to dwell on this part, that Adam was so close to God that he was able to converse with God just like friend with friend. I mean, he was able just to speak with God freely. There was no big effort for him to speak with God. God was just there. The companionship was there. And so a conversation with God was just as easy as me talking to any of you tonight. It was free and flowing completely natural thing for Adam to do. The fall, of course, changed all of that, and it changed the method of contact. But I want you to see that we still can rejoice because we can remain in contact with God. What changed with Adam was that freeness of inhibition about talking with God. That's because there was no sin at that time. There was nothing that would mar that personal relationship that Adam had with God. But now sin constrains us. Now sin has taken away that freedom so that speaking with God does not come naturally for us. And for most of us, for many people, it's not even desirable to speak with God. The freeness and the desirability to speak with God is something now that we have to cultivate. We have to actually work on the thing. Now, understand that I'm talking here about Christians because there is no freeness and there's no desirability of ever speaking to God if a person really doesn't know Jesus Christ. And in fact, God doesn't even allow you to come to Him without knowing Jesus Christ. And a lot of people believe differently than that, but read the Scriptures. If you don't know Christ, you don't have a right to come to God. As a matter of fact, any attempt to pray to God with, by going around Christ is the ultimate blasphemy. You know Why? Because God sacrificed His own Son to give us that privilege. And so when you try to come to God bypassing Jesus Christ, you might as well spit on the cross of Christ. You're saying, we don't really need that. We can approach God any way that we want. No, no, no. God does not let you approach Him without coming through Jesus Christ. Now, Christians most certainly ought to rejoice in the privilege of contacting God. Because if... God had not given to us Christ freely, then we would deserve nothing but to be stepped on like bugs when we call on the name of God. But because of the fallen nature that we have, the desire to contact God has to be cultivated. Now, I think one of the most interesting things that we find in the Word of God is that God is desirous of that contact. In fact, God is so desirous of the contact that we have with Him that God said, I'm going to teach you how to do it. Now, he didn't say, figure this thing out, and, and maybe, you'll, maybe I'll hear you, and maybe I won't. Maybe you'll hit on some kind of a formula, and you'll get lucky, and, and then uh, you'll have the right combination, and then I'll listen to you. No, God said, I'm going to show you how to do it. 
That's what the model prayer in Matthew chapter 6 is all about. Now, we call that the Lord's Prayer. The uh, disciples could look at Jesus and they saw the way that he prayed. And they saw that Jesus had an uncommon way of praying and that he had power with God. And so they wanted to know how Jesus prayed in that way. And so they said, teach us the correct method how to pray. And the result of that was the model prayer. That's what we call the Lord's Prayer. More correctly, we should call it the model prayer because the Lord's Prayer is really what you read over in John chapter 17. That's the high priestly prayer of Jesus. That's the real Lord's Prayer. The one in Matthew is a model prayer. And it was given to teach us how to contact God. And that's what we find there. We find out how to get God's attention. And we're going to go through the Lord's Prayer in our Matthew study a little bit later on. But all the elements are there. There's the correct method of address. There's adoration. There's the request. There's the will of God. All of it's there. And we just rejoice because God desires the contact. And God doesn't shut us out. And God doesn't say, leave me alone. Now look at verse 6 in our uh, Philippians 4. It says, let your requests be made known. One of the purposes of prayer is for request. God supplies the need through the request. So God wants you to contact him because that's his method of giving. So rejoice that God's not hiding from you. God is not looking at this like, well, here comes that guy again. He's hitting me up one more time. God never thinks like that. God wants you to call on him because God has plenty to give. And then we'll look at the second aspect, then we'll be through tonight. Rejoice in supplication because you can remain in communion. Now, going back to the Garden of Eden, sin interrupted the closeness of communion. God provided a way in which it could be restored. In fact, what God did for us is better than what Adam had. What was lost in Adam was more than restored in Christ. What we have in Christ is better than what Adam had in the Garden of Eden. Most people look at that and they don't see it. And they say, well, well, wow, you know, Adam had, had it so good in the garden. He didn't have to work. He never had a fight with his wife. Adam was on easy street. And that's true. That, that's true. It, it was easy for Adam in the garden. But who could compare living in the garden to living in heaven? We get more in heaven than Adam ever had in the garden. And the same thing is true when we think about communion. We have more than what Adam had because now God is not outside of us. God is inside of us. You know, we have no indication in the Bible that God was with Adam every single minute of the day. There were times when Adam was out of God's presence. Now, certainly when he partook of the forbidden fruit, he wasn't in the presence of God. And then when he tried to make fig leaves to cover up his nakedness, he was not in the presence of God. And, then when, and when he tried to hide so that God couldn't find him, he was out of the presence of God. Now, Adam was aware of the presence of God. Of course, he knew that, that God was there at any time he wanted to be, and God would speak to him. He knew that God was everywhere, but there was a specific place and time that Adam talked with God, and he only had intimate contact with him at certain times. That has changed since we've come to know Christ. The scripture says that our bodies have become the temple of God. He dwells in us. And there's not even one second of the day that God's presence can't be felt. Now sometimes you don't feel so holy. And you may not avail yourself of the presence of God. That doesn't mean he's not there. He's always with you. Once you get saved, the Holy Spirit is always inside of you. 
That's better than what Adam had. And it's really something to rejoice about. And it's exactly what Jesus had in mind when he was ready to leave this world. And he he told the disciples not to fret about this. Don't you worry about this. Don't be upset about it because I'm going to give you something better. Now, it was great to have the physical presence of Jesus. They could talk with him. They could see him. They could touch him. That must have been magnificent to have the personal presence of Jesus. But Jesus said, I'm going to give you something better. And so he comforted his disciples by telling them that no longer was he going to be outside of them, but now he was going to be inside of them. This is what he says in John chapter 14. He says, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more. But ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also." At that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. Notice there he says, the last part of that last verse, at that day. What day does he mean? He means the day that the Holy Spirit comes. He says, you will know when the Spirit comes that I am in you. That is an awesome thought, isn't it? I mean, here we are struggling with everything that's going on in our lives, and we think, well, God doesn't really care. We've been left out of God's plan. Things aren't going our way. Well, here is a point of rejoicing because there is continual communion with God. This is not an appointment that you make. It's on Sunday morning at 11 a.m. when you come into the service here. You don't have to make an appointment with God. God is with you all times and in every place. So these are reasons to rejoice. And I encourage you, take some time to talk with God because when you speak with Him, the conversation is always fascinating and it's always stimulating. Talk with God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for Your Word and for the encouragement that we receive from it. We thank You, Lord, that there are concrete reasons that we can rejoice. We see things that You've done in our lives. And Lord, we just pray that we might consider those things and know that you're always in control. You always care for us. You always take care of us. Lord, just help us to remember all the reasons to rejoice. Bless in the time that we sing now. Thank you again for being in your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.